2: Today's guest on Around the Coin is Tim Noy, the founder and co-CEO of Finclusion. Finclusion is based out of South Africa, issuing loans to people throughout Africa. I believe they're in about four countries now, and they've done millions of dollars of loans. We talked about how they're expanding throughout Africa, what the economy of Africa looks like, both the upsides, the downsides, the the risks that are on the horizon, but also where there is probable economic development. We talked about the influence of China in Africa and the infrastructure and credit debt relationship that have been built as a function of that development and what the future looks like as Africa grows and builds and needs debt. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Here is Tim Noy. Timothy, I'm excited to chat with you. Um, why don't we kick it off with what you're currently working on? So you're based out of South Africa. You are working really seemingly with the mission of improving access to financial uh, tools in South Africa, Africa at large with Finclusion. How do you sort of define the scope and direction of what you're most excited to help solve?
3: Sure. So I think where we see ourselves different than many of the FinTechs around is that we very much focus on building a solution that the people on the ground really need, uh, creating a digital bank, but with a credit-first approach, offering a hybrid you know, way of obtaining credit, not just digital, but with digital processing and, and digital outputs, but also through a hybrid strategy with offline-in strategies. And I think that gives us an edge really addressing our, our ultimate goal as the middle of class, serving them with, with credit. We're in South Africa, Kenya, Tanzania at the moment, uh, right now just doing credit, but over time looking to elevate that from just credit to deposit savings insurance, where it's our goal to really become people's, you know, financial home uh, over time as we see these markets pick up attraction. And so the basic business model is you
2: borrow money from banks or individual people and then decide who to loan them out to, typically small businesses. Tell me where I'm wrong.
3: Absolutely. Although, you know, I think if it's not just, well, I guess, it is deciding who to lend it out to, but it's both the, of course, the strategy of, of who to get credit to from a credit decisioning perspective. We use AI algorithms to, to effectively determine who we think are credit worthy, predominantly looking at their mobile money history, their transactional financial statement history, looking at income and expense, but not just the affordability levels of, of what they make and how they spend it, but also trends and, and behavioral traits we believe we can read out from this. And then at the same time, um, it's about finding those people. So we use digital partnerships. We partner predominantly with employers, with merchants to give people access to instant credit. Because I think it's more and more important for people to continuously have direct access to you know, the services they seek. And I think it's the, it's the easiest point of time to provide people credit as they're looking to, to close a transaction. So it's it's really both. It's finding the people that need and want the credit, as well as as then being able to score them better than the rest. And what's the what's the
2: type of person who you're most interested in talking to? Is it like a small business owner that needs thousand dollars by a freezer, or is it like I'm buying a pair of shoes online, or who who?
3: So, that's a good question. So so we see ourselves as slightly more productive. We go for slightly larger loans. Although when I say larger. Our average loan size is about a thousand dollars, but it a different goal that's in Africa, vis-a-vis what it has in uh, the rest of the world. Then with that average loan size, we're looking at usually 12 months loans, installment loans. And our clients are usually either uh, formally employed or informally employed or entrepreneurs. Uh, the loans could be for home improvement, buying a car, buying a motorbike, uh, education. We do a lot of school fee loans. Um, and from an income level perspective, it's probably people making from around $300 a month upwards, all the way up to sort of three, $4,000 a month, really covering that middle class. Um, for us, we grow with our customers. So we also like to be able to give larger loans. So someone successfully rebates, wants to do something more, ideally manages to, to build out his, his business from one truck or one vehicle to multiple vehicles we can still grant that credit. So we're, we're less focused on, 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 on one-dollar transactions and we're focused on really building sustainable relationships with our clients. Um, and then over time, really would like to be able to even, you know, provide bigger loans, whether it's fifty or $100,000, you know, if, if clients can sustain it, then, then that's what works for us.
2: Got it. And how far along are you in this? How many, what, what's the total value of the loans given out? Uh, for comp- we raised? have a
3: really broad thing about $3 million of loans a month. Um, mm-hmm. so let's give or take three thousand loans or average loan size each month, and then we've grown to, well, we we've we've grown a lot more loans, but we stand at about a twenty five million dollar active loan book outstanding at the moment uh we We believe we can scale that significantly over the next couple of years. I think as Africa gets more online, more digital data is available, the ability of really score digitally and give sustainable larger loans will go up materially. really. Today, data still is is one of our biggest uh, challenges because ultimately it's difficult for us to give sizable loans if people haven't really transacted online or used mobile money because you know, we don't want to rely on, on traditional sources or more subjective sources. So we don't want to go with interviews or assessments because the second you do that, it becomes very difficult to digitize and
2: automate. Right. And, and what's the distribution of those loans across different countries in Africa? Roughly speaking.
3: So our four markets are South Africa, Kenya, and Tanzania. South Africa is probably about 50% at the moment. Kenya about 40% and Tanzania about 10%. But the growth rates that we see in Tanzania are probably sort of the biggest, you know, uh, from within our group. Uh, we're looking to add Uganda in the next six months. And, and we do believe that both Uganda and Tanzania will be very significant growth drivers for us based on the relative market dynamics um, and the relative credit-to-GDP ratio. So South Africa um, actually has credit-to-GDP ratios that that are very much in line with uh, you know modern country standards, uh, cl- close to 100% private credit-to-GDP ratio, whereas if you look at Kenya Tanzania, they're close to about uh, 20% credit-to-GDP. So from a penetration perspective, the opportunity is, is really in East Africa. South Africa has the big benefit for us that The digital landscape is is very powerful. Everything is connected. So the ease of doing business is much easier. And it's a great market for us to test all our tools and to really basically, you know, give things a try and figure out what works and what doesn't.
0: Hmm.
2: Can you explain that ratio a little bit more? Credit? You say credit to GP? What what is that?
3: Credit to GDP, gross domestic products. And is that of the country? So you're measuring the credit of the... so the total credit in the country relative to the total GDP, just to see relative to the country's sort of production levels, what's actually financed with private credits versus uh, inability to access credit. And I think the higher that ratio, obviously, the more credit penetration the country has seen. Um, and the ratio should be more linked to economic developments. Obviously, that ratio being very high in the United States makes a lot of sense because a lot of people can qualify for credit. But emerging markets, you naturally expect it to be lower because not everyone that produces will be able to be eligible for credits. Uh, interesting.
2: And what, what would a typical number look like in, in say, like a country like um, in Europe or the U.S. versus in Africa?
3: So U.S., Europe, it's all around 100%. Uh, Europe, mm-hmm. uh, slightly lower than the U.S. Average emerging markets globally, you sit at around 60, 60 Africa as a continent sits at around twenty percent, two zero. So it shows the, the under penetration even vis-a-vis or Latin America on the, the private credit levels. And now, clearly this, not clearly going but It also includes corporate credit, of course, but it it showcases the potential of the financial services market as a whole. Interesting. And it's access to that that
2: credit that is the opportunity. And what do you see across the different countries in Africa that you think attribute most to which which countries are uh, rising quicker? Like you mentioned, Tanzania, Kenya, obviously South Africa has more of a economic history. But
3: so I think for us, we see a lot of growth in Tanzania because it's been extremely underpenetrated and not as much targeted by by fintech startups or startups in general over the last few years. So if you sort of look at the African continent and you look at startups, you look at people from the United States, from Europe. You know, South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, and Egypt have always been the core countries in focus. They've gotten a lot of attention. They've gotten a lot of, you know, innovation. But on a relative basis, all of the other markets, those per say have less potential or macroeconomic or informal economy basis, but they haven't seen the same level of development and penetration. So it's all of those other markets. For us, it's the Tanzania, but the same thing applies to Francophone Africa. There's a lot of quick wins and low-hanging fruit because there's customer groups that hadn't actually been served that would have been served had they been based in Nigeria, Kenya, or South Africa. That's why we see a lot of growth in Tanzania. Generally speaking, you know, in terms of ease of doing business, uh, you know, ID ID infrastructure, banking infrastructure, level of actual data penetration. Can people, you know, get online? What's the cost of going online? Is the smartphone penetration pickup? Are all factors that play a big role? Kenya's real differentiation and one of the reasons it grew so much was the penetration of mobile money. So with (coughs) Safari Gold and FEDSA, the country was the first adapter of of mobile money, which created a digital trail and and a transaction history for virtually every Kenyan, which means that there is a basis to start scoring. Um, And that's something that's still, you know, lacking behind quite significantly in in virtually all the other markets. Nigeria, you know, not a market we're in, but through InterSwitch and their local Verve cards, has quite a good database. But then you look at, at Tanzania and Uganda, and there's still a very significant degree of, of cash that's only now really starting to turn into mobile money. Hmm. And do you, do you feel like there's
2: a cultural um, acknowledgement that this is that moving in this uh, direction of having access to credit, having access to the internet, becoming more plugged into the global economy? Obviously, it introduces an enormous amount of change from the traditional lifestyle in some of these places. Is that something that you think is widely accepted as this is the direction that we want to go or is there still or is there mixed views? I mean, what? how do you sort of assess um, so the general sentiment? It's
3: a journey and it very much depends, I guess, on age groups as well. So do you still see the traditional microfinance houses that do everything offline? as our biggest competitors. And, and we have certain advantages. We're much quicker in credit turnarounds. We can actually give better service because the digital, but that phase, that direct interaction is still something a lot of people are used to. So I think that that journey of going from offline to digital, you know, it's still not fully really accepted. The big benefit we have is that unlike the Western world, where at some point, you know, we're bank branch and ATMs at every corner of the street, that infrastructure was never built in Africa. So the adoption of digital channels is accelerating because people get access to things they otherwise wouldn't be able to get access to offline. And that's where people really start to understand, okay, actually, if I adopt this, then it gives me the following benefits. I can suddenly totally do this. I can suddenly totally call people. And I mean, Africa basically skipped landline telephony and went straight to mobile. Um, I think on the sort of you know smartphone perspective, it's similar in a way. They skipped the first few generations, but we now see an acceleration, you know, There's lots of places where there's still no fiber internet, but there is 5G. And, you know, what's interesting is that because Africa was such a late adopter of 4G and 5G, in a lot of the countries, the cell phone towers were actually designed optimally based on the lay of the land and the geographical footprint. Whereas if you look at sort of Europe or the US, then you'll see that historically towers were built up where they thought the biggest demand was. And then the rest of the country was retrofitted, creating sort of gaps in coverage because no one really, you know, took the map and said, okay, we have an empty map. Let's figure out how we basically build digital infrastructure here. So there is leapfrogging. I think there is definitely elements where, you know, they can accelerate. And I think politically people fully understand this is the way to go. But on an individual basis, there's a lot of people who are still very used to offline interactions. Yeah, yeah, and and do you view that as sort of the largest thing that that
2: would need to change to have wide scale adoption uh, of of so that like credit? Like, yeah, technology? I think
3: to really build, you know, multi billion dollar businesses in this segment, that adoption level is what needs to go up. Right now, the the relative percentage of offline is still much bigger than online. Uh, but on the pulse of positive, because there's also a relatively small amount of market participants. I still am very convinced, even without further adoption, we can build a billion dollar business on the continent, just granting credit to those that are transacting online now, just because the level of credit penetration they have. But for us to really do something transformational, yes, that, that level of of digital adoption needs to go up. What we do to try and push that is we use hybrid channels. So we work with employers, with merchants, with agents, and allow them to help clients get their first online experience. And that effectively explain that, look, if you go through the app, you can continuously see your balance. You can see your latest transaction. It makes your life easier. You can save money. You can get extra credit and try it effectively convert people. But in conversion remains difficult, uh, which is where our hybrid strategy with the agent gives us an edge. But it also means we have to keep pushing it because over time, we think it's, it's, it's very critical that client ownership goes you know, firmly with us and is not purely shared with the agents.
2: Interesting. What do you view the influence of China so far, either in South Africa or other countries? Have, have they influenced much of the economy from your perspective?
3: So it's it's been very material. I mean, they've really been responsible for big pieces of infrastructure. You look at all the air force that have been built, roads that have been constructed. A lot of that has been Chinese money. Um, it's interesting because they've really created capacity from an infrastructure perspective, which is obviously a great thing. At the same time, I think that, you know, a lot of that was done with Chinese labor where they actually fly in everyone from China. So so it hasn't per se made a real impact on the real economy of some of the countries. It just made life easier for those of us traveling in and out. Um, but yes, you can see that they've really secured a lot of influence. I also think that they funded those... Uh, construction products quite cleverly with gold credits for proceeds from mining or agriculture outputs, um, and really solidified their relationships on the African continent. So I do think that Africa has stepped in very cleverly in, in where perhaps gaps were left with the investment strategies that came from the West. Uh, yeah. It's in a really interesting
2: relationship, <clears throat> China and African countries, um, yeah. Uh, what are other things about Africa? Maybe about the uh, e- economy in the various countries, maybe South Africa, or surrounding countries that you think most people don't have an appreciation
3: for. So, so I think it's, it's, I think it's, it starts from is the fact that that if you look at the continent, a lot of countries have very different challenges. So you know, there's 54 countries that probably have more differences than they have in common, except for the fact yeah. that there is still a massive opportunity out there. Uh so, so I think that's that's often something that, that's ignored. I think if you look at South Africa, very good digital infrastructure has some challenges, you know, politically as well, relating to its history. Um the biggest challenge in South Africa is that there's just too small of an economically active population relative to the total population supporting that. And then there's other markets where you know there's just so much infrastructure missing that they still have really catching up to do. Um so so big differences. I think. Yeah. People underestimate, you know, how much basic infrastructure is still needed. So you get a lot of people that bitch and say, no, we're going to solve everything for people on smartphones. But in as much as smartphone penetration is picking up, but I believe the latest stats were around 40%, that still is a minority that does have smartphones. But even if people have smartphones, they don't always have data they can afford. Uh, So they might actually not be online or be using the smartphone functionality. Some people have multiple, which means the amount of people that have none is actually higher than people think. So I think that degree of offline interaction that's necessary is is very critical. And I think that it, it means that the potential is huge because if some of these things really change, then some of these continents will really start taking off. But at the same time, I think, you know, as much as I'd love to say that, that Africa is where Brazil is, you know, it's still quite far from, from where Brazil is. And I think that's where... Oftentimes people have, have perhaps unrealistic expectations. I think the growth potential in Africa's possibly bigger than anywhere else in the world just because of the level of, of penetration where we are today. But there's still a big journey to go. You know, there's no digital verification of IDs possible. Uh, you know, a lot of things are still luxury problems because there's so many primary challenges. Uh hunger, you know, poor pure, pure poverty that the people are still dealing with on a day-to-day basis, meaning that, you know. Some of the other things that that are often already now important in in sort of slightly more elevated Western markets aren't as much of a topic uh, in some of the African countries. And do you you see
2: this as a 10-year, 20-year, 50, 100-year kind of sort of challenge where I think of it as if you're in poverty in some of these these countries, the big economic opportunity that's staring in the face is like – like interacting with and being productive on the internet. You know, we're now in a global workforce. The vast majority is, uh, the vast majority of tech companies are remote. So many companies are remote. They, as long as you have a protocol for communication, like if, if you can speak the
3: same language or even oh. use, use a tool. Absolutely. I think it's picking up. I think the biggest difference is, is I think India and, and China are really reaping the benefits from their investments in education. Mm-hmm. And, and that same investment hasn't taken place across the board in Africa, per se, yet. Which means that on an average level, people aren't as educated as in those markets, which means that the current generation, not everyone will be able to take some of those knowledge worker roles that you can actually do remotely. So we do see some of those roles picking up, developers' salaries picking up heavily. Um, but in as much as you know, salaries for tech developers in South Africa are probably at a record high, Unemployment is also at a record high because there's a lot of people that don't have transferable skills that could work at a global economy. So the big thing that will need to happen is, is really see education levels go up, have everyone from GLEE basic education, start going with further education. We see that people are prioritizing it for, you know, their children and the next generation, um, you know, from my perspective, realistically, it's probably a dense 20 year journey to really see Africa succeed. Because that generational impact where education levels materially change and, and people can really participate in the global workforce, I think is incredibly important. Uh, but that being said, that doesn't mean we won't see significant growth year on year just because the low levels, you know, things are, are currently coming from. So I think great things are happening every year. africa come a long way since I've started, uh, you know, working on the continent in 2010. But at the same time, you know, that, 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 that exponential growth that, that people have hoped for hasn't yet kicked in. Uh, but I have no doubt that it will. It's really just a, a question of, of when that escalating events is that it really starts growing, you know, quicker than, than anything else. Um, it needs capital, uh, but most importantly, it just needs investment in education because the people it can really take things further and, and, and truly transform the goals of
1: if you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed. Accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by Zen Go. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And ZenGo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs, so they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo.
2: Do you think the, the, the place will be heavily influenced in the short term by or ha- have you seen an influence in cryptocurrency and the technology of decentralization take, take root? I mean, I, I know from just firsthand experience, uh, there's a, a strong culture in Nigeria and many countries in Africa. Famously, the Twitter, uh, Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey, uh, made a big trip around Africa promoting Bitcoin. And it seems like culturally, especially young people. Are super bullish
3: on it. What's your sentiment? So it's a it's a complicated one. So it's, and it's a mm. very interesting one as well. So and then the reason I say that is that from a general population perspective, a lot of people are very excited about you know cryptocurrency because there is a lack of distrust in local currencies, and 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 not for saying fairly so to a certain extent. If we look at how some of them have performed to the US dollar over time, so for a lot of the average people around banks and, and local currencies, they feel like they're giving their money away. It's a little bit like the equivalent of a Chile or an Argentina, where time over time, again, the currency devalues and people's savings and wealth wipe out. So from that perspective, obviously, crypto and Bitcoin offers a very attractive alternative. I think the main challenge is that from a regulatory perspective, regulators, governments are very afraid of capital flight. And there's exchange control regulations where there's limitations on how much money you can move in and out of the country in you know, a whole number of them, Nigeria included, South Africa included. And I think regulators are trying to figure out how to regulate crypto. Uh, Nigeria now is, 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 is running pilots with, with digital currencies and sort of a central bank crypto going. But obviously, in as much as that you know, applies some of the technology perspectives of it, it doesn't truly address that 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 you know that complete decentralization moving the currency controls away from from government so i think we'll see adoption of of sort of you know, crypto like technology in africa very significantly over the next couple of years but i also think we'll see continued pushback of regulators that have a fear of what of what uh free adoption of bitcoin would do to potential capital flight for all the country um And I think that's where, you know, fundamentally a lot of people think that Bitcoin can address, uh, you know, making remittances easier, moving money across easier. And as much as operationally that's true, um, you won't get a stable exchange rate of local currency versus Bitcoin anymore than you would get of local currency versus US dollar until you fix all of the underlying problems that exist in the local currency and, and you get those trust levels up. Because otherwise, you're just shifting the problem. We now have a variable local currency to crypto rate instead of a variable local currency to US dollar rays. So I think we'll, we'll see adoption, definitely. I think the technology is super exciting. I think lots is happening that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but there's still a lot that, that needs to happen.
2: And do you think, I mean, I sort of compare it to the U.S. in the sense that the U.S. has 50 states that are easy to move between and then a centralized federal government. Africa has 54 countries that is probably harder to move between, but no no centralized authority. There's no like African government. Do you see this as a scenario where maybe one country takes a stand similar to El Salvador and says, Like, screw it, we're just going to go all in and we're going to differentiate ourselves instead of try to fight the same battle everyone else is fighting. We're going to go like crypto first, dissolve the fiat currency or maybe acknowledge Bitcoin as a government recognized currency and just fully try to support it and try to attract smart people and grow the economy that way. Is that something that you think any countries are navigating towards or
3: do you think that's a realistic scenario? So I think the difficulty is, is that you always figure out how you manage policy as a government. And if you look at sort of, I mean, you look at Zimbabwe, right? Zimbabwe had a local currency that crashed. And in 2008, they adopted the dollar and they were literally a US dollar-driven economy, only operating on, on dollars from 2008 for basically a decade. Um, but eventually, I had to reintroduce the local currency because they were depleting their dollar reserves, couldn't get access to further dollars, couldn't get access to further loans. And they weren't able to transact anymore. So without actually raising a local currency, reintroducing that, they would have had a situation where they couldn't have paid their Gold Tracks, couldn't have paid government employees. Now, subsequent to doing that, that local currency has wiped out in value, crashed, and it hasn't per se worked out better for the country, but they were left without alternatives. And I think, you know, with the exception of, of smaller island states, that to the extent they have a free, apparently free rate against the US dollar, it's potentially very risky for a country to go and say we're, you know, not our own currency only because they'll not be able to basically drive economic policy anymore. And I think that's the real challenge. I think if we get someone to say, then probably be a shells or a Mauritius that have tourist dollars, that have solid revenue streams, or possibly it could be a very, very heavy sort of, you know, resource-based country where they believe they can actually generate those, those streams. But if they want to do everything with crypto, they still need to have a currency or a modus of getting that crypto. Uh, so I do think we're going to get some styluses, but I think initially, you know, I think we're going to see people trying to be front runner the way Nigeria is doing it by creating their own digital currency, where effectively they they try and limit some of those risks, if that makes sense. Hmm. So you're saying the problem is that people
2: w- would need a way to move into cryptocurrency, like if they're moving to Bitcoin, does that mean are you looking at it from the lens that, that employers would still pay out in some other currency other than Bitcoin, or well, could you see Let's start with government,
3: right? Government has employees. So where does government get its Bitcoin? Um, it needs to have economic reserves of sorts to be able to obtain that Bitcoin because it probably wouldn't be able to drive enough revenue of its resources to do that today. So that's where I think the big challenge comes in. It's really from a government perspective is how do they basically make budgets work? How do they pay people? How do they pay the army? How do they pay teachers? There's still a very big public sector in most African countries with very little privatization actually happens. Um, and that would be a big challenge in, in moving to a, a pure crypto world. Oh, interesting. Because they, they, I assume
2: there's a treasury, like the, the country will have some balance, but they there's no buyer
3: for that treasury to move into Bitcoin. That's the problem, right? Yes, and they have limited foreign currency treasury reserves. So they may have a treasury of local currency bills because mm-hmm. they theoretically just print them themselves, but their foreign currency reserves are, are limited. And it means Zimbabwe managed for 10 years, running off the US dollar. Um, but then they ran out of money and, and no other choice of, of reintroducing uh, with the complete destruction of trust sort of related to it. I think that's the main challenge that, that would need to be
2: resolved. It's an interesting one. So it, would you agree that this is sort of summarized by it's the relationship of power uh, in the sense of the government having power usually backboned by military or physical power, but front end is like politicians and policies. And then the it's like a a related issue, but different is the monetary supply and the, the value of the currency as it relates to the like the quote unquote power both hard and soft of the government like if, for instance, Zimbabwe went on an economic tear, they were you know growing super quickly, they had low corruption rates, they invested things centrally into the right infrastructure, like things were looking great, the currency would probably follow suit because the currency is like a, a way for external investors and, and internal to the country to like place bets on the future upside of a of the centralized government itself. Does that make sense? Is that how you look at it or think about it?
3: Yeah, that, that's effectively how it makes sense. And and, and I mean, the the, the the reality is is that, you know, you need to balance those two, right? Mm. Uh, and I think that, that's the challenge oftentimes we've seen um and I think you know some of the things you've mentioned are things that definitely need improvement when it comes to policy sustainable funds in um I think you know the role China has played is is not just first say only positive because I think you know the the European and American money flowing into Africa has some ideological ideological views as well where They're funding it, but they're funding it with certain objectives in mind. Now that's positive because I think it's fundamentally good for the continent. But sometimes it's perceived as negative because it can be seen as prescriptive to the powers at hand, right? Where they say, "Look, we'll give you this money, but you have to do one, two, three, and pull. You know, the Chinese, for lack of a better word, don't really care. So they'll fund projects as long as they get their economic returns that satisfy the requirements the Chinese have. They're not too fast. What the underlying uh, country then do order them with the project at hand, which means that there has been sort of a sell-off of resources and projects to the Chinese where I think had countries complied with requests from the IMF, you know, uh, World Bank, European instances, to, you know, how to conduct themselves, they could have actually gotten those funds at economically better terms from, from those sources rather than from the Chinese. But it would have to go with concessions on how they can conduct their affairs.
1: Lucky Land Casino,
2: asking
3: people what's the weirdest place you've gotten
2: lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Haha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do
1: I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky?
2: No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I'd love to shift gears a little bit and ask you what you learned at the Fractal Labs, during the Fractal Labs, when that was your main focus or to what degree that is today. This is, uh, the description I have is it's creating unique risk and AI modeling frameworks for the financial market. Can you talk to me a little bit about what, your, what Fractal Labs is and, and what you've uh, uncovered through that endeavor?
3: Absolutely. So, so it, it, it's really a credit you know, risk assessment tool where we do most credit scoring as well as risk reporting for microfinance houses. The technology we, we built and designed there is still the baseline of everything we do within Fincluge also the digital banking side. Um, so I think, you know, it, 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 it was extremely interesting. I think, you know, one of the things we learned is our initial thesis was we, we really thought we could provide a, a one-fit-all solution for the African continent. And the challenges we were running into was that a lot of the microfinance houses and banks had such offline infrastructure running digital scoring tools became almost impossible because if people don't have a data lake or at least a data warehouse, there is no data to score through. Uh, We realized that people oftentimes had business processes that weren't fully designed and automated. So there was no plug and play where we could basically hang in the scoring bees and the credit risk assessment bees automatically. Um, So those are very much some core components we learned. Um, I think through a credit risk Analysis perspective, you know, we really started realizing the amount of value we can extract from banking statements, how people spend their money, what they do with it, how quick they spend off their mold and, you know, how long, what their propensity to borrow is. Um, so I think we learned a tremendous amount. I think one of the challenges we, we also realized is that, you know, you have to have the right product mix for some of these tools to basically make sense in the African context. Because if you give out a $5 loan, the cost of scoring almost becomes prohibitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there is significant you know, cost you know related to all of that that data to be obtained. I think it was definitely one of our five for the most valuable data at the moment is mobile money data in Africa because it gives such a you know detailed breakdown of people's day-to-day expenses, behavioral trend, what they do when, that you can read a tremendous amount out of it. Uh, whereas oftentimes bank statements are still very significantly salary, cash out, cash out, cash out, empty, where then it's actually the data doesn't really tell you so much because most customers in Africa live on a multiple basis. Uh, what you really want to know is, is what they did with the money, not just, you know, which days they spent what amount, but very specifically the underlying uh, spending patterns.
2: When you say you want to know what they do with the money, do you mean you want to know what they spend it on? Or you want to... Wait, wait. Like
3: we want to know you know, what percentage of their income goes into rent, what they spend mm. on eating out, insurance. If they have a car loan, do they have uh, insurance for it? Do they have health insurance? Uh, and what day in the mall do they run out? Do they keep reserves for later in the month? How often do they borrow? Do they have a propensity of longer-term loans versus shorter-term loans? Is there any gambling? Um, you know, do they try and make cash catch or buy mobile money? Uh, how much, you know, money disappears for some sort of unclear purposes, which may be helping family or, or mm-hmm. more anything of the likes, but but not driving productivity. Um, those are are really sort of things we look for. It's interesting. I, I've talked to a couple of people that are in the credit
2: business in the US and one of the things they talk about is the regulations on the, the types of things you can't use to assess someone's credit worthiness. Is there a similar established uh, regulate regulatory policy, which does it vary country by country, or is there is there really not much that you can't use?
3: No, so I think you know regulation on the continent isn't really focused yet on the use of data per se. It's still very much focused on okay, can people afford to loan, mm-hmm. and are you re- trading fairly? So the country debt regulation is very affordability focused. So if someone earns thousand dollars, you cannot give a hundred thousand dollar loan. Um, some countries have take-home pay regulations. Someone makes, let's say, a thousand bucks, at least 400 needs to still be left over after loan repayments so that the person basically can actually live a decent life and not be stuck in indent trips. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, use of funds, uh, sorry, you know, data you can use, there's still limitations. I believe, you know, if I recall correctly, and it's a long time I looked at it, but in the US, if you get declined or approved for a loan, you have a right to ask the bank why exactly you got declined or approved, and they should be able to give you a paper trail, and there can't be any sort of black box logic in it or anything that, that potentially could be seen as, as discriminatory or, or inappropriate. Uh, whereas, you know, we're able to, to effectively take into account anything. Uh, there's no such regulation prohibiting us or, or limiting that factor. And we have no obligation to explain to someone whether, you know, why we gave them a loan or why we don't give them a loan. We ourselves try and be consistent, explain to people why we didn't give them a loan if we do not, just because we believe that it helps build transparency, it helps build relationships. But obviously, the reality is, is you know, there's many, many factors involved. We can't always give a clear-cut answer and a clear-cut explanation. Uh, I think it's always a combination of factors. Sometimes it's it's partially macroeconomic driven. Where you know now with the increasing interest rates, you know, and 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 the inflation, the the gasoline prices, we're very much more conservative than we were before with the credit granting because we foresee that consumer spend is going to be more challenging. People might be into financial difficulties in the near term, which means they need those reserves to be able to, you know, pay for things, and it's it's critical that we provide for that and ensure we can actually, you know, assist people with with the things they need. Mm. And do you do you see that uh, change in the market as
2: something that is happening relatively at the same time across the world? Does the U.S. largely influence in, interest rates and inflation? Like to what degree is African countries influenced by the U.S. or China or some combination of those and other countries?
3: So I would say that if the U.S. has major movements or Europe or Asia, You'll see major movements in Africa as well, mm. but that doesn't mean that if the U.S. does not have major movements, that there cannot be major movements <laughs> yeah. in, in Africa as well. So, so like right now, where you see a global increasing of rates in the U.S., Africa is following suit and effectively keeping its margin to the U.S. stable to maintain currencies, etc. Also, moving interest rates up, but. There's can easily be situations where the U.S. will keep the interest rates flat, but specific countries have macroeconomic conditions that make them increase the interest rates. Uh, similarly, with inflation, it's very much country by country. A drought in one country can have a major impact. So there's quite a lot of factors that can give additional factors really driving that on top of just the U.S. impacts. Uh, but yes, I mean from a treasury perspective, that does have a major impact, um, and then. I think food prices are extremely critical in Africa their they're a big proportion of costs. Uh, gasoline prices are important specifically because energy is linked to it. Um, so their global trends will filter through. And then it's also indirect because with US interest rates going up, less funding will effectively be available for Africa because there is, you know, the second you go into sort of a, a higher interest rate regime; there is generally a safe haven trend in in capital markets. People are going for more safer investments, which means that the appetite to potentially do African credit will be lower than it would have been, you know, a couple of months prior when that wouldn't yet have been the case.
0: Mm. How
2: how many of the countries in Africa have centralized credit bureaus or any sort of
3: centralization of credit? So there is most of the countries have something, but mm-hmm. the data. Pretty bad. Yes, Yeah, outside of South Africa, I would say today that's pretty bad. So, per se, complete. A lot of countries don't have compulsory filing, so there is a lot to to be left and and all about it. I think there's still a very much a, competi- a competing culture in between financial institutions, whereas actually, I think you know a collaborative culture would be better for many of these things. And I think you've, we've seen the rest of the world moving to collaboration in, in many of these facets. And I do think it's something that's now being pushed on the continent as well, but it's not something that's been there historically. And what's the primary incentive? If you think about it from an incentive standpoint,
2: for someone to pay back the loan, so you take out a thousand dollar loan, if someone's on the fence. They they are. They got to debate: Do I pay my my loan back, or do I buy this these shoes or this clothes or this food?
3: Like that's a very good question. So I think there there's carrot and stick. So carrot is very much look. You know, you want another loan here, officer, pay this mm-hmm. one back to qualify for more in future. And that's probably the best incentive. Then stick goes from the reports to credit growth as exists. If you then get reports, you can't get further credit. Um But security is also important. So for us, we have either is what we call a sort of a, a, an improved collection channel where we can either directly strike your bank account and take the payment straight off it. Or we partner with an employer to withhold the installment of your salary. Or if we don't improve collection channels, we work on either having a vehicle or a motorbike or a physical asset as security. And I think that's the the reality today, to basically overcome some of the challenges that, that come from the limitations in the the credit bureaus, You look for secure assets that you can effectively say, look, if you don't pay, you'll lose your assets, which obviously has a negative impact on people's livelihood and ability to earn a living. Uh, but it's it's probably one of the biggest challenges. And it's also about relationship managing, being actively on top of it. There's a big part of positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement, I guess. So if someone defaults, it's important to go through the whole process. Otherwise, it will spread like wildfire. And suddenly people think, oh, it's okay if I don't bait these people. Nobody minds, nobody will ask. And I think that's something that we really learned over time is the importance (laughs) of actually setting those standards, really showcasing people, hey, if you don't pay us spend, we will come after the money and we won't stop till we actually ensure that we get it back, go through a full legal process. Um, but that's still a big challenge. And then probably also one of the reasons why, you know, credit has held back relatives to the rest of the world. And is that part of the strategy of expansion
2: for these partners with employers? Is you're like, hey, I mean, maybe the employer is great for getting new customers, but it's primarily a, a mechanism for asset
3: like collateral? Absolutely. It's yeah. primarily a blessing version. Basically, you know, if, if you weren't worried about uh, collecting, lending and Africa would be very easy, but you'd actually be running a donations business. <laughs> <by lending. laughs> uh, That's, yeah. Everyone wants a loan. You know, the difficulty yeah. is finding those people who are also likely to pay it back. And, and I think that paying back, it, it has two components. It's, it's willingness, you know, does someone want to repay you? and its ability and you need both of them to be right because if someone doesn't have the money you know then they're never going to repay you uh-huh. um and i think that willingness factor is critical whereas if you look at sort of the you know for example the european context i mean it's it's actually quite interesting how some sort of those beta lenders in the us and europe made incredible amounts of money by just charging interest over interest over interest on a low. And people just bait those ridiculous loan balances back. You know, no questions asked. The fact that someone had to pay back multiple times to capital, you know, they they just say, they sort of say, well, I shouldn't have taken that loan, right? Uh It was stupid of me. I made a mistake. I didn't read the terms. The same thing on the continent, you'd get a reply like, no, no, but I was cheated. These terms were unfair. Mm. So There's no bait why I should pay because I've already paid more than the principal. So the fact that I signed the contract, you know, this was just unfair. So I think that's definitely something that's different in that sense.
2: It's like a, it's like a, it's like a culture wide difference in the recognition or respect in the legal framework to some degree, right? It's like ter- to what degree do people value or respect the terms of service? Which terms of service is like a pseudo legal framework? It's a, a private company legal framework.
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean, and it, it's really a cultural thing. I think first and foremost, absolute.
2: Hmm. It's interesting. interesting. Anything else you want to add? Uh, I know you have such a unique perspective in the world. I I was so excited to chat with you Um, living in South Africa around this. Yeah,
3: it's, it's, it's very exciting to to you. What I would say is that, you know, the more capital, the more, you know, intellectual financial capital goes towards the continent, people doing things, whether it's investing, whether it's actively running projects, the faster the, you know, the golden will develop. And then that's ultimately what it needs is, is people investing their time and money to really drive the golden forward. And I think that's what, one of the things that excited me is that we're in a unique position. where doing well and, and doing good are closely aligned. Just by virtue of where the golden is, almost any business you run here, if you price fairly, has a big inherent social mission because you're creating unemployment that wasn't there, capacity that wasn't there. And I think that that's really exciting. And I think, you know, we we can't spread that enough and, and, and really sort of stress that, yes, Africa may be perceived as risky. But one of the interesting things on the continent is if you execute a business plan well and you do basics right, based on what, what the other opportunities it offers are on the continent, you're likely to do well. So in as much as you may have higher macro political risk, there's probably lower execution risk than, you know, some of the opportunities in in the Western world, because there's not 10 people trying the same thing. There's one or two at best. Mm. So, you know, the more people kind of think about that, realize that, and then direct capital to the continent, the quicker we'll see, you know, real significant growth. A quick question. This is a little bit of a tangent or a side off, but
2: how do you see, are you concerned? To what, to what degree are you concerned about the uh economic and industrial development starting to or destroy or take away natural wildlife reserves and and areas that you know Africa has the most amazing wildlife uh, like is that a is that a thing that you think these countries highly value and will really stand by or do you think it's like a real risk as they develop and they start to expand industrially
3: so i think a couple of things that, that are very positive impacts. First of all, some of the African countries, Botswana, Rwanda, come to mind, have really seen the potential of, of what then wildlife and that ecology can do to tourism mm-hmm. and can actually use it as a channel to monetize. So that's been a big factor. And then the second part is that, you know, globally, there's a big focus on wildlife preservation uh, where, you know, lots of money can get behind that and actually support that. And, and kind of, you know, you can preserve things in Africa that weren't even a consideration when the same industrial development was happening in, in the rest of the world. So I think that those are our big pluses. I think the bigger risk isn't so much the you know, systemic risk on, oh, you know, Africa doesn't care about the wildlife or ecology, but the bigger risk is the individual risk with not having the capacity to properly secure those places and individuals just seeing you know the potential of what boaching can get them um, uh, so they definitely need more capacity, but I think there is very much a conscious, you know, belief in, in what that can do for the continent. And I think when Europe and the U.S. went through similar industrial, you know, revolutions, no one actually cared about the environment. No one was paying any attention to it. Um, so in that sense, I think it, it's in a much better position than, than anywhere else in the world was when they went through such developments. I think it is a consideration, which is, I guess, more than it's ever been anywhere else.
2: Yeah. Well, it's also just so much more important because of how few places there are left on earth that are with the yeah. vastness and impressiveness of it. So yeah, I donate personally to, to, I have a friend in Tanzania and I've just follow a few accounts on Instagram and just donate to those, those places. Cause it's just, it's such a magical and important thing to preserve, um, Thanks so much for hopping on, Timothy. It seems like uh, things are going really well, and sounds like you guys are in a great position to expand. Uh, are you actively writing on on Twitter or any blogs anywhere that people can find you personally online?
3: Um, firstly, mainly just use LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are as a company, we we do use LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and and try to be active. It's something that that sometimes you know. Leaves to be, be improved, but we're probably most active on LinkedIn in, in all honesty. cool. Uh, but I guess Twitter might now be the platform to follow with, with all the recent changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It'll be interesting.
2: So Finclusion is uh, the place to go. Yeah. And uh, Tim, thanks so much, man. Congrats on everything and talk soon. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving
1: us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts tweet about it or text it to a friend.
2: We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear
0: from you. you